Good morning. My name is Pastor John, and I'm so glad that you are here worshiping with us today. Today, if you look at the title, we're talking about the wonderful word of a righteous God. And I want to focus on that one word I just said there, wonderful, wonderful. What makes something wonderful? What is it about something that captivates our eyes, makes us stand in awe? What do we consider to be wonderful? Maybe it's something in the beauty of nature. I know I got a picture yesterday from my sister. She was at a beautiful waterfall, and I thought, wow, that is a wonderful that is a wonderful expression of God's creation there. So maybe it's something in nature that we say, yeah, that's wonderful. Maybe you use the word wonderful to talk about the art or the creation of another human being. You look at a, a work of art or see someone's performance or something like, like a movie or a game, and you look at, wow, that's wonderful how everything came together there. It's a word we often throw around, but when we see something that we describe as wonderful, more often than not, it's something that is not easily forgotten. We see it and we go, that is wonderful. I will remember that for a long time to come. Well, the passage of Scripture we're looking at today, which is Psalm 119, verses 129 through 144, says that God's Word is wonderful. The Bible is wonderful. And why? Well, we're going to take a look and find out. If you haven't been with us, we've been in Psalm 119. That is the longest psalm or song of praise in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, longer than some books. It's all a love song, a hymn about God's Word. And the reason it's so long is because it's really an acrostic poem. It uses eight lines, eight verses for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So each line starts with a Hebrew letter and then it goes to another. Now we don't see that in English, but if you look in Hebrew, you can see it. So this is, I like to each week take a picture of where it is in my little Hebrew Bible. You can look at, you maybe see the 129 in Hebrew, you read right to left and you can see 129, 136, it all starts the same and 137, it picks up with a new one. So they all start with the same letter. It would have looked very beautiful, very wonderful reading it in the original language. Last time, though, we were in Psalm 119, our brother Josh was speaking to us, and he was speaking about how God's Word spells out two paths for us. It tells us about the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And today, we're going to unpack more of that righteous path by talking about the righteousness of God and the righteousness of His Word that makes this book so wonderful. And what we're going to discover is that God's Word is wonderful because it brings understanding to our lives. It's wonderful because it brings peace to our lives. And it's wonderful because it is righteous, like the God who is its ultimate author. And then we're going to talk about what that means that God's Word is righteous. And it means that it's faithful and proven and that it's a source, the true source of comfort and delight in our lives. So what I'd ask you to do, if you're not already there, please turn to Psalm 119, so big 119, little 129 through 144. If you'd like to use the blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 610. It will also be up on the screen though. So once you are there, Psalm 119, 129 through 144, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word, if you are able, and then follow along 
as I read our passage for today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. So Psalm 119, starting in verse 129. The psalmist is speaking to God and says, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Verse 133 says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. And then the next section, verse 137, begins this way. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. And then in verse 141, he goes on, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful word, this word that comes from you, that tells us who you are. Today, Lord, help us to see how wonderful it is. Show us how your word brings understanding to our lives and gives us direction where to go. Reveal to us the peace that comes, God, in your presence that we discover through your word. God, help us to see that your word is not only wonderful, but it is righteous. It is righteous and just as you are. God, may that righteousness remind us that your word is faithful and it is proven. We can rely on it. And may we see it as the true source of our comfort and delight. God, in all of this, as we look at your word, may it help us to love you more because it's your word, your communication to us. It reveals to us who you are and it reveals to us the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. As we talk about your word, may our eyes be drawn more and more to him. May he increase in our thoughts and in our love. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack why is God's word wonderful, at least according to the psalmist right here. And he starts by telling us uh, in three reasons, but the first he looks at is because God's word gives us understanding. It gives us understanding. And we see that in this passage. 129, he starts by saying to God that your testimonies, your statutes are wonderful. They're beyond human creation. 
and human excellence. As he says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. And there's that word wonderful, which I just talked about. Normally we associate it with something we've seen that is truly impressive to us. And that may seem like an odd word to use for a book. It's really just an old book that we have. I realize this copy is small, but maybe you have a bigger one. Maybe it's an old big book. Is that that why it's wonderful? Because it's so large? Why would we call a book wonderful? It may seem odd, but it is true. Scholar Danny Aiken put it this way, nothing is like his word. It is a wonder to behold, cherish, and possess. And the the psalmist finds God's word to be wonderful. He's going to tell us why as we go on, but because he thinks it's wonderful, he keeps, obeys, and complies with it. He says, God, your word is wonderful. I cannot help but do what it says. The song we sang, how can I keep from singing your praise, God? How can I keep from living for you because your word is wonderful? And why does he think is wonderful? Well, what, verse 130 says, because the unfolding, the teaching, the entrance of your word into my life imparts, gives me understanding. It gives me things that I can ponder and explain and come to understand. It helps me to know who you are, God, and what you are like. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. As the psalmist reads God's word, as he comes to grasp, oh, this is what you said, God. It gives him guidance for how he can live and how he's supposed to honor God. A Puritan named Thomas Watson put it this way, highly prize the scriptures or you will not obey them. The psalmist has learned God's word is wonderful and valuable, and so I live it out. I do what it says. I value God's word, and I put it into practice. And he recognizes that without it, he is simple, and so he needs this understanding to know how to follow God. Now, that may be a word we don't use very often like that. We use simple. We typically mean something is easy. But when the Old Testament uses it to describe a person, it's talking about someone who is easily misled, who doesn't have firm convictions, who hasn't solidified in their mind, well, what is the direction I'm supposed to pursue in life? The word simple is used to describe that, somebody who needs guidance. That is why this wonderful, perfect word is necessary. Another psalm, Psalm 19, puts it this way, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Like that psalmist, this one's realizing that God's word brings light and understanding to our dark lives. It helps us know the way to go when we are confused or when we could be misled. And so the psalmist realizes this. And so he says, God, I need more of your word in my life. He longs for God's word. He expects to be satisfied by it. That's what he says in 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. He wants more of God's word. It's kind of phrased weird though, open my mouth and pant. What what is he talking about? I, I think the reformer Martin Luther has a good paraphrase here. He says, it's kind of like he's saying, I've opened my mouth that I might not want to offer what is mine, not because I want to say things to you, God, but I offer my, I open my mouth because I desire to receive what is yours almost like a a baby being expected to be spoon-fed there, opening mouth, wanting to receive from God. That's the image he's doing. He's, God, I want to receive your word. 
He's recognized the value of God's word. Uh, another place this is used in the Psalms is to tie it into an animal. A well-known verse, Psalm 42, says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Um, when I see that, I think of the, the King James Version in the song, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. The psalmist has this insatiable, this unsatisfied desire. He says, I want more of God's word. And so that leads him to ask for God, to bring it into his life. He wants God to turn to him and be gracious to him, have mercy on him. That's 132. Turn to me, be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. He asked, God, God, I long for your word. I want your word. And I know I can ask you to bring more of it into my life because I know how you act. The way you act is you always Respond with grace and mercy to those who know you and to those who love and value your name. If someone is, is in love with you, God, and in love with your word, you bring grace and mercy. Uh, British pastor Charles Spurgeon says, if God looks and sees us panting for him, he will not fail to be merciful to us. The psalmist knows he needs God's mercy. He knows we're all sinners in need of God's grace. We've rebelled against the Lord. His grace and mercy is what we need to remove our sin, remove the shame from our sin and disobedience against God. He needs to bring grace and mercy so we can be restored to a right, peaceful relationship with our Lord. This is the hope we have to to know God, to be close to him. We don't have to be trapped by the shame, the sins, the failures of our past. We can trade that guilt and sorrow for God's love because of what he has done for us. And I'll say this several times, but that is why it's important that you know him, that you've turned from sin and believe in him. That is the hope that he offers. Now, when the psalmist talks like this, saying he longs for God, he wants this grace and mercy, he's not saying this because he's some super saint. He's not somebody who's figured it all out, has all the answers. No, it's, it's not that. It's because he's learned that he needs to depend on God, that his only hope is if he is relying on him. And I think each of us could confess that we often turn to other sources of satisfaction. We chase after other things that I, I want this to satisfy me or that thing. Yeah, God's word is great, but I need this in my life or that. It's a reminder we all need that God's word brings that grace and mercy and understanding we need for life. And this, even me talking here, I'm not up here saying that, yes, I figured this out. And every time there's an issue, I flee to God's wonderful word. No, we all need this reminder. I know that when life is hard and difficult, it's it's often a challenge to see the value of this book. When you're in the middle of a crisis, you're like, do I really need to pull out a book? I really need to, to solve this issue that's in front of me right now. When situations in life wear us down, sometimes we create some distance with God's word. I know I've been in a place for a while. I sometimes struggle to see hope for the future, and maybe you've been there too. Our problems appear to be so overwhelming that they can blind us to the treasures that can be found within God's word. 
But when we find ourselves chasing after those other sources of comfort, whether it's a relationship, whether it's uh, some activity we're doing, whatever it is, when we find ourselves chasing that, then we need to check our appetite. Because this psalmist says what he needs, what he opens his mouth for, is to receive God's word. That is what can bring understanding and peace to his life. True spiritual hunger, lasting peace, can only be found in the Lord and knowing him through his word. And this understanding, grace and mercy, is wonderful. So God's word not only brings understanding to us, but the psalmist goes on to say it also leads us to the peace of God's presence. God's word is wonderful because it leads us to the peace of God's presence. And we'll see this in the next couple verses. The psalmist asks God to keep him steady, to direct him, to guide and establish his steps according to the promise of his word. As he says in 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity, no sin get dominion over me. Uh, That first phrase in 133, keep steady my steps, this is another time where um, my brain jumps to the old King James language, which is order my steps by your word, Lord. And again, I think another song goes like that. But regardless, it reveals the truth to us that God's word shows us the way to go, that it brings peace and stability into our lives. And it's interesting why the psalmist wants peace in his life. It's not because it's like life is really hard right now and I really want to find God's peace. These other people are doing things and I want God to work out my circumstances. But look what he says. He wants God's peace because he wants God to protect him from his own sin. He says, keep my steps steady according to your promise. Let no iniquity and sin rule over me. Get dominion over me. He knows it would be inconsistent for me to claim to know God and yet sin rule over my life. It's the sign of a lack of relationship with God. He knows that sin and rebellion against God is deceptive. It's powerful. It can pull him away. And so he asks God to keep me on the path. Do not let sin take over my life. Because sin can do that very easily. And then it's very hard to escape. I remember a few years ago, the men of our church, we were doing a a study that was talking about um, overcoming sexual sin. And I remember someone sharing something. One uh, one of the speakers there said that in his experience, it takes at least two to five years to overcome uh, a sexual addiction. At least two to five years, I said, with a miracle every day. His point was that it's not something we decide, oh, I'm done with that sin. No, sin wraps us up, holds us in, and we need God's grace to continue. He is the only one who can keep us from sin and help us to grow more like him. And Psalm 19 says this very same language here, or very similar. It says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, from sins against God. Let them not have dominion over me. It's almost the same phrase. Keep back your servant from sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And why does he say that? Because then I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgression. His desire is, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. He wants to be acceptable to God, close to God, in God's presence. And so what he says is, God, I need you to keep me back from that sin. Keep it from having dominion over me so I'm acceptable before you. 
He also calls out to God back in our passage in 134. He's asking God to redeem and rescue him from human oppression. He says, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. He wants to live for the Lord. He needs to be rescued by God. Again, reminding us that God is our rescuer. And primarily, he redeemed and rescued us from our slavery and our bondage to sin. That is what he does through Christ. We're trapped in sin, but he can set us free. Before Jesus was even born, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, spoke of what God would do through Christ. This is in Luke chapter 1. He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see that connection there? He says, God, we need you to deliver us so that we might be able to serve you. So whether we're suffering because someone else is attacking us, whether we're suffering because of our own sin, our own choices, the solution is the same. We can go to God because he gives us grace through his word. And so that's what our author does. He says in 135, he wants God to rescue him. So we ask him, make your face shine upon your servant. Look at me with love and teach me your statutes. That's, that's such a beautiful phrase describing God acting in our, life, our lives. Make your face shine upon your servant. It comes from earlier in the Old Testament, a, a famous blessing Uh, from the book of Numbers, which says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a blessing from God for him to, to shine on us so that we see him clearly, know him more, and we know him through his word, and that is where he gives us peace. In our passage, that's also coupled with the desire to learn more about God. See that those things work together. In our passage, it's make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. As he said earlier in the psalm, blessed are you, O Lord. God, you're the one I need, but teach me your statutes. These things go together. He wants to be close to God and live for him. They're intertwined. They, we can't pull them apart. God, if we know him and we're drawing close to him, we will live for him. We'll make decisions that honor him. We'll want to do what he says. Our psalmist knows this, and he knows it can only happen if God comes to him. It's only in the presence of the face of God that we are taught to be like him. Now, when I say God's presence, I'm not talking about some mystical, magical thing that happens. I'm not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings we get in our chest. No, Look at what he's saying. He's saying, God, I want your face so that I understand your word. Being in God's presence is growing in our understanding of God, learning more about who he is, learning more about how to rely on him. That is the place of true liberty and true peace. We can see this at work in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul speaks about the same thing. In the book of Galatians, Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. And so it means it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, who gave himself for me. 
What it means to live in God's presence is the old self is dead and we are living for the Lord. And when this happens, we'll view other people in our lives differently. Uh, Verse 136 speaks to this. The psalmist has sorrow, grief, pity for those who are unfaithful to God. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He has grief that others sin, grief that God's character is despised. And again, we see this change has happened in Paul, Apostle Paul as well. In the New Testament, Philippians 3, Paul says, many whom I've often told you now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Both the Apostle Paul and the psalmist, they've been changed by the peace of God's presence. Now they know and they rely on God. They've seen God's face because they've been in his word. They understand who God is and it's made a difference in their lives. Now I think that last verse, 136, is kind of a test for us, a check for have we been changed by God? Have we understood who he is? Do we view God's word as so wonderful that it makes us cry when other people don't obey it? That's what he says. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. I don't see that reaction very often, even often in in my own life or in the lives of those who know God. I think we're influenced by our age. Our age is an age of anger. The resources we have around us, social media, news, they encourage us to be angry with other people. Other people do wrong and I get angry about it. Now don't get me wrong, there's a place for anger at sin. We've talked about that in this psalm, but in our day and age, I think the Bible speaks to a missing need we have for lament, for mourning for sin that perhaps is more valuable than anger. This psalmist, he's found God's peace, and so he weeps that others do not know it. He weeps that others have not turned from sin and embraced faith in God. He weeps that others do not know God and do not live changed lives as a result. So let me ask you, what about you? Do you get angry at the sin of others or are you broken before the Lord? I think if we reach that place of brokenness, it will then lead us to share with others, to tell others, this is who Jesus is. He's the one who came and lived and died so that you can know God. I pray that brokenness would lead us to share with others, to think about who is that person I need to tell about God's peace and the relationship they can have with him? Who do I need to tell about this wonderful God who can bring understanding and peace to our lives? So yes, God's word is wonderful because it gives us understanding to live. It can bring us peace, but all of that would be meaningless if God's word was also not righteous as God is righteous. God's word is righteous as God is righteous. But before I jump into that, maybe we should take a moment to talk about that word, righteous. It's kind of a word we see and our, our, maybe our brain checks out a little bit. We're like, oh, that's just a church word people use. What does that mean? What does righteous mean? Now, if you go to, uh, I remember in high school or, or middle school, the teachers would always say when you had to write a definition for a word, it was very bad to use the word in the definition. Unfortunately, that's what we're going to have to do here because righteousness is who God is. It is what he does. 
Let me look at maybe use two definitions that I came across this week. One is from a theologian named Wayne Grudem. He puts it this way. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Let me read part of that again. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. God always does what is right and he is himself the final standard of what is right. So how does that work itself out? What does it look like? Well, another definition I found was uh, from a scholar named Peter Toon, no relation at all to me. I just found it funny that that was his name. And he he put it this way. He or God always has a right relationship with people. And his action, the things that God does, is to maintain that relationship. So in other words, what does it mean that God is righteous and good? It means, yes, he, he does right. He is the standard of what is right. And it means, what does it mean for us? It means that everything he does for us is because he has a right relationship with his people and he acts to maintain that relationship. And these are the definitions that we see working out in our passage, which celebrates the righteousness of God and his word. God's word is righteous, our author tells us, because it is faithful and proven. It is faithful and proven. God is righteous. He has right rules. He is upright, fair, proven, faithful judgments. As he says in verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. God's character and nature is that he is right. He does what is right. He always chooses and always does right. We can't understand what righteousness, what doing the right thing is without looking to God. Because we don't have it. We certainly can't understand what it is. A a really interesting place where this comes out is in a prayer by the prophet Daniel. You may remember Daniel or heard stories. The guy who was in the lion's den. But later in that book, he's praying to God. And this is what he says. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us open shame. He says later, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. We can't understand it, so we need to look to him. We alternate between one day we do what is right, one day we do what is wrong. One day we may be particularly virtuous and doing things, God's word says. The other day we choose our own way. We cannot bring that standard of right and wrong, but God is always right. He does right because that is who he is. And if he is righteous, well, that means his word, his rules, the things that he has said, his words are righteous as well. The statutes, the commands that he lays down and appoints are righteous and perfect. They are faithful and completely trustworthy. 138 says, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. They are righteous, good, faithful now. We can trust what God has said in the present and we can trust it throughout all eternity. He will be faithful. That means we are not in a position really to question God, to, to say, God, are, are you sure you're going to do what you say? Oh, he will. He is faithful. He cannot be questioned in that. Uh, Since I was in the book of Daniel, it struck me by another place in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, 
But what, what I love about this passage here is I could tell you this was Daniel saying and writing this, but in this part of the book, it's actually the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar who's realized how good God is. And this is his response. He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, no one can stay or stop God's hand or say to him, what have you done? We cannot question God's righteousness, faithfulness. Now, that, that being said, that doesn't mean that you know, if we're ever confused about something or we don't know an answer or we, we want to express our confusion, our frustration to God, that doesn't mean we can't do that. It doesn't mean God says, be quiet, don't ask questions. No, no it, we can call out to God. We can ask others, help me to understand what's happening here. But what that passage means, the one we read, is that we do not have the authority to lay aside what God has said. We don't have the permission to say, well, I don't like that part of God's word, so I'm going to keep this part out of here. Um, I'm reminded of uh, one of the, the third president of our country, Thomas Jefferson. He made his own Bible. He took out the parts he didn't like, and he made his own one together there. We, we don't have the authority to do that because God is faithful to all of his word. The psalmist knows this, and it's changed him. It's worked in him. His zeal and passion now consumes, wears him out, because his enemies forget and ignore God's word. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word. He knows God is righteous, so it troubles him when people don't act according to that knowledge. He knows God is righteous, so it, it troubles him when innocent lives that cannot defend themselves are taken and lost. He knows God is righteous, so it troubles him when someone's human dignity and value is denied because of their people group or who they are. The challenge to us, are we troubled when God's word is rejected? Yes, through the actions of others, but we troubled when it's rejected through our own actions. But regardless of how we respond, 140 tells us that God's promises are well-tested. They are thoroughly tried. 140, your promise is well-tried and your servant loves it. God's promises have proven to be true, and so the psalmist loves how reliable they are. Uh, a proverb that speaks to this, Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. It's almost like, think about if you were ordering something online. What do you do? You, you want, I don't know, a, a toaster or something. So you type toaster into your website you're buying it from. Uh, it's probably Amazon, but whatever website you're typing it into, and it comes up, and you look at the options, and if you're like me, one of the first things your mind goes to is, let me look at those reviews, and let's see those reviews there about how this product is. Well, even though it's foolish to do so, if you were to try to examine God and his word the same way, you would find that it proves true. It proves faithful. His word withstands the fires and trials of life. It is proven. And since it is faithful and proven, we can rely on it to be our model for spiritual growth, how we live for the Lord. 
Uh, in the New Testament, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, the verse is well known, but look what he's saying. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from God. And that makes it good for teaching others, for reproof, for correction, but it also makes it good for us for training in righteousness. So friends, if, if you are at a place where you've lost hope, where you're struggling, this is where you can find it. This book is where you can find it. If you're in a place you want to grow, then this wonderful book will be our guide. Whatever happens in our lives, his word remains faithful and true. It's not just something to rely on, although it absolutely is, but there's another benefit that comes. It's not only faithful and true, but God's wonderful, righteous word is also a source for us of true comfort and delight. That's the last couple of verses. He says, God's word is a source of true comfort and delight. The psalmist says that his enemies are powerful. He is small, lowly, insignificant, and despised, but he does not give in to the temptation to join them with their evil. Instead, he takes comfort in the precepts, the instructions of God's word. That's 141. He says, I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. He may be despised, but he's walking closely with God. And he does this because he knows who God is. He knows that God's righteousness is everlasting and that he is righteous forever. He says it in the next verse, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. He knows that God acts with perfect justice and will show perfect justice throughout eternity. The truth is not out there. No, the truth is found here. And so he relies on God's word. Uh, a verse that uh, you should hear about next week, a little bit later in Psalm, I love how this verse puts it. This is verse 160 of this passage. It says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Let me take a minute here again. I love that. The sum of your word. If you were to write every Bible verse on a piece of paper and add them up, the answer would be truth. When we add God's word together, we see, oh, this is true. It's from God. It is right and good. So in other words, as Pastor Charles Spurgeon put it, we do not say of the scriptures that they contain the truth, but that they are the truth. And if God's word is true, then it can provide comfort in a broken world. Uh, Danny Aiken, again, put it this way, politicians lie, CEOs lie, employees lie, spouses lie, parents lie, children lie, even Christians lie. But our God never, ever lies. Never. That's what the psalmist says. God's law is true. And that is what gives him comfort because he goes on to talk about that trouble, pressure, anguish, and distress have found him out. They threaten to push him down. He feels like an animal that's been hunted and cornered and has nowhere else to go and is worn out. But in the midst of that hardness, that suffering, that exhaustion, he finds joy and delight in God's commandments. As he says, trouble and anguish have found me out but your commandments are my delight. 
He's not denying that life is hard and difficult. Again, he's not a super saint saying, I figured out this, I have all the answers, I never struggle at all in life. No, if you read closely, you see he's going through a really, really hard time. He feels like he's been trapped by this, but he still takes delight in God's commandments. God's righteous word brings delight to his life. He said earlier in the psalm, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. He hopes in the righteous and just God. He places his confidence in him. And so where does that leave him? He has a simple conclusion. This is 144, that God's words and testimonies are righteous forever. They are always righteous. He says, your testimonies are righteous forever. And that leads to the one prayer request he has in these verses, these last eight ones. His request is, God, Give me more understanding that I may live for you. He's learned what God's word can do, and he asks God for more of that understanding. I've quoted twice before from Psalm 19. It's very similar to this part of our passage. Let me go back there one more time. The author says, The precepts of the Lord are right. It rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens our eyes, helps us see what we should value. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true. How could you sum this up? And righteous all together. So yes, righteous is a word we often more use in church. It's a word that makes us want to zone out. But the fact that God is righteous and his word is righteous, that can be a source of comfort for each of our lives. And I realize I've already had two Spurgeon quotes, so I thought, what's a third? What what does that do? When we are sorely afflicted and cannot see the reason, we may fall back upon this most certain fact that God is righteous and his dealings with us are righteous too. And whatever happens, God is righteous, good, and, and just. And I know that that's really hard to see and grasp when we're in the midst of a very trying, hard situation in life. I don't know everything going on in every person's life here. I know it can be hard to see that. But we learn from his word that that is who God is. And if we see that, then we see how wonderful that is. So if your life is challenging right now, if you need comfort and delight, that hope can be found through his word. Now, that hope comes first and foremost through a relationship with Jesus. It's he's the one who lived for us, who died, who rose again. His call on us is to see this, to see his word is wonderful, to see how wonderful he is, and to say, well, the way I'm living now is not working. And so to turn away from that and say, I want to trust and rely solely on you. And if you have not done that, or you have questions about that, I I pray that you'll speak to me today. Say, I I see there's something special here. Help me know more about this God. But once we do that, once we know him, that's not the end of the story then. That's not, it's really the beginning. It's the first step of a journey, a lifetime of discovering who God is and discovering more about his wonderful word. So why is this book Why is the Bible wonderful? Well, because it gives us understanding for life. It shows us the way to go. It can bring peace into our life. We can have a peace with God through Christ. We can have peace in the storms 
of life because we are in his presence when we spend time with him. Because he is a righteous God who always does what is right. And his righteous word has proven faithful and true over and over again. It is the true source of comfort and delight in this life. Friends, I pray you will rely on him, seek him, call out to him in your time of need. But for right now, let's praise him for being wonderful and for this wonderful word because he is worthy.